Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. I want to start this morning by taking a straw poll. On a scale of 1 to 10, how many people here would say they are satisfied with their prayer life? Okay, I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but is anyone going for a 10? Okay. Is anyone struck on, stuck on one? Well, that's a good sign. Who'd put themselves above a five? Okay. Now, what about if we discount the good days? Oh, a couple. Okay, so we, what we found out is no one thinks they're perfect. A lot of us don't think we're very good. And we have some good days and some bad days. Is that a fair summary? Now, I don't, I don't ask this this morning because I want to bring condemnation on anyone. But rather to demonstrate a point. Because I think however much time we spend in prayer, however we pray, whatever method we use, whether it's formal or informal, most of us are unsatisfied with our prayer life. And I think that's the impression I get that some of you are feeling. Now, even if you scored yourself at a nine, what that actually means is you're still feeling that you could do something more to make it a 10. Why is that? I've been thinking about it during this week, and I think it's primarily because we are, at the very heart of it, built for relationship. And most of us can see that the relationship we have with God is limited by us. And as a result, it could be better. When we read the accounts of the time following the creation, but before the fall, we can see a glimpse of how things were meant to be. Just after the fall, in Genesis 3 we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said to his wife, sorry, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? From the way that is told, the impression is that there was nothing unusual about this encounter. There was nothing unusual about God walking in the garden. It was something he was accustomed to doing. In fact, what was unusual was the fact that he couldn't find Adam anywhere. Usually, they would walk together. But today, Adam was hiding. So just like any father looking for his child, 
he called Adam, come on, where are you? The fact they were hiding wasn't normal. Usually when God was walking in the garden, they would be there alongside him. They'd be chatting about what they had been doing, just like children do. Those of you who've had children will know that they go through various phases in the way they communicate. As teens, it's often difficult to manage much more communication than the occasional grunt. And having relied on that for a number of years, Rachel and I can still communicate through grunts when necessary. Some of you have seen us do it over the phone, and just for a bit of fun. But before that, before that stage sets in, there's a period of indifference. It's that stage when, when you ask your children, what did you do at school today? It's met with the answer, nothing. You know, the amount of nothing our girls did at school over the years makes me think they should have got an A-level in it, because that's all they ever seem to study. Nothing. But at some point, before even that indifference sets in, there's a period that I can only describe as innocent pleasure. I don't know how long it lasts. It might only even be a few weeks. But I picture it by those days when the kids come home from having had an exciting time and want to tell you all about it. The information spills out of them about what they've seen, what they've done. And of course, don't forget, there's the obligatory painting to go on the fridge door. When I read the passage in Genesis 3, that's what I imagine had happened the previous day. As God had walked in the garden, Adam and Eve rushed up to him and started to recount to him everything they'd been doing. What they'd discovered, what they'd learnt, and like any parent, God delighted in it. That's why on that particular day we're told about, when there was no sign of them, when they didn't rush up to him, God called out, Adam, where are you? Relationship. Communication. That is what we are designed for. And as the relationship was broken down, the chance to talk became painful. Instead of the spontaneity of those garden walks, communication became more constrained. As we go through the Old Testament, times of prayer became more and more formalised. Communication with God was something for the priests and a favoured few. Hearing from God was for the prophets. Prayer by others started to become a series of pleading rather than that spontaneous conversation between friends. As you read through Genesis, we see people talking with God. But the first reference we see to prayer comes in chapter 20. When having misrepresented Sarah as his sister, Abraham brings condemnation on Abimelech. And God tells Abimelech 
Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. And then a few verses on we read, Then Abraham prayed to God and healed Abimelech, who and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. Abraham pleads to God for the life and the well-being of Abimelech and his family. And that starts a pattern of prayer. When Israel were in the wilderness, following that time of grumbling, it says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. When they'd been serving other gods, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. When they'd gone through that period of demanding a king, it says, So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, but we may not die. There's loads of examples. If you want to see them, just do a word search in the Old Testament on the use of three words. Pray, prayer and prayed. And the trouble is, that is how we see prayer today. That we go to our God and we plead. We plead for our life, we plead for our health, we plead for our well-being. It's no wonder we don't find it easy. But fortunately, there's a better way. Because Jesus, throughout his life, modelled something different. For Jesus, prayer was a personal thing. It was something right at the very heart of his ministry. This is what it says in Luke 5. But now even more report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Whatever stress he was facing, he always took out the time to talk to his heavenly father. In fact, on one occasion he remarked on it. He said, I only do what I see the father doing. And often these times of retreat and prayer were just before he demonstrated the most miraculous things. But equally, he didn't dismiss the corporate nature of prayer. 
Instead, he encouraged it by saying, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But he did warn us about watching out for our motivations when we pray. In the story of the two men going to pray, he makes it clear that it isn't fancy words or public profile that impress God. It's an open heart and humbleness. He said, two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven but he beat his breath saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted And as Jesus prayed, as he laid hands on people, the power of the kingdom went to work. He saw healing. He saw people raised from the dead. He saw lives restored. And the same is true when we pray. James wrote, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So we know today that as we pray, as we take authority in the name of Jesus, the same is true. There is power in prayer. But prayer was never designed to be a reactive thing. Something that we just use when trouble hits. Prayer has a wonderful way of preventing problems in the first place. Jesus demonstrated that when he prayed for Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had prayed in advance that Simon would endure the trials that Satan had in store for him. And he does that even for us now. Paul wrote to the church in Rome about it. He said this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I mean, isn't that a great thought? Doesn't that excite you? That even today, Jesus is sat next to God, interceding for you and for me. When Jesus entered the temple... 
and overturned the tables. When he chased the money changers from that temple area, he said, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. And he was thinking back to a prophecy by Isaiah hundreds of years before, where Isaiah foresaw something that was going to come. This is what Isaiah said. It's in Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. At the time that that was given to Isaiah, the inference of that would have been about the temple. Probably when Jesus quoted it, that's what people's minds thought he was referring to. But now we know, as Paul repeatedly told the church in Corinth, we are the temple of God. We're the temple of the living God. This is what God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God it's the promise to return to that relationship that existed right back at the beginning of creation I will walk among them that God through his Holy Spirit would commune with us, would live amongst us, would walk with us. And he does that today through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because what God desires more than anything else is to rebuild that relationship, to have that daily walk in the garden that he once enjoyed with Adam. So here again, the things that excite us, the things that worry us, the things that we need, even the things we don't know that we need yet, to express to him our hopes and our dreams and our fears. And that's why when we read about the early church in the book of Acts, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Are you devoted to prayer? I don't mean are you devoted to prayer meetings, are you devoted to prayer? Knowing how hard this would be for us, God sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. 
when we don't know what to pray when our words run out the Holy Spirit within us guides our thoughts and even provides the words for us as I've looked at this this week I truly believe that above everything else what God really wants for us is to talk with him to get back into that conversation are you part of it? do you have that conversation? we're called to be a people of prayer that's why the church in Thessalonica were told this rejoice always Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The challenge this morning is to give it a go, to get back into the conversation. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.